Let's pray. Holy God, you do have words of life. Your word is life. Stirs to ever greater life, ever greater joy by your word this morning. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I began by asking this, this question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? As apart from the gospel message, this is probably one of the most important questions that need to be asked. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? As we talked about last week, many people think, well, going to church, that makes me a disciple of Jesus. Well, going to church and having a good Bible-based, Christ-centered church is really important, but that doesn't quite get there. Some people generalize it so much, they say, well, you know, being a disciple of Jesus, I just try to live as good of life as possible. And that doesn't get there either. I mean, living a good life is, well, good, right? I mean, you should be trying to live a good life, but how would that make you any different than a Buddhist, a Muslim, or even an atheist? You see, there has to be something different about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow in his footsteps and ultimately to follow his word. Jeff talked about that, and you're right, I do talk about that a lot, every week just about, following his word, because that's the crux of it. We can say in generic, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I would say, well, great. How have you grown in grace and mercy and love this past week? Or repentance and forgiveness? What scripture are you studying to move you according to his word, not just a generic sort of thing? And last week, we read from Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, by the way, if you haven't studied this, this one you could study all year and still have room to grow. Listen to it. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, Being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's enough in there that if you would study it week in and week out, it would change your life. You see, being a disciple of Jesus means being specific according to his word. Now, I know what I just said might be a turnoff for some people. Some people say, well, are, are you st- do you mean i got to study the Bible? 
you mean I have to actually apply it in my life? Oh, that's, that's, that's too much work. Well, let me put it this another way. If you want to grow in love in a way that you've never loved before, and to be able to receive love in a way that you've never received before, if you want that, be a disciple of Jesus and his word. If you want to heal from sorrow, from bitterness and grief, be a disciple of Jesus and his word. If you want to grow in joy and in gratitude of the things around you and the people in your life, be a disciple of Jesus and his word. See, are you eager for that? Now, again, you might be thinking, okay, how does this relate to Nehemiah? I thought we were in the Old Testament. Well, we are in Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah had finished the wall in 52 days. Huge accomplishment. But the glory wasn't in the wall. The glory was in God and His Word. And so they gathered together around His Word And they worshipped. They were eager for his word. It wasn't just the project. It was all to the glory of God. So we're going to learn from Nehemiah about a hunger, an eagerness, a joy for his word. So the first is they were eager, they were hungry to hear. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to go through 3. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on that first day of the seventh month, and he read read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Can you imagine if somebody says to you, so how long is worship at Joy Church? And you said three hours. You'd be like, three hours? What do you do? Well, we stand, and somebody reads God's Word for three hours. Do you sing? Nope. Just God's Word. Do you uh, do anything? Nope. Just God's Word. Three hours? Yes, three hours. You know, there are many churches who want to shorten everything and make it into a neat, nice, little one-hour patch. I know some churches that they time it out so you can only do one hour. And some people would complain if it goes over because, well, they have brunch to go to, right? Or something like that. Brunch is more important, like, let's just get this off the list so I can go to brunch and be with my friends. I know uh, other churches have actually like a, a stoplight, and especially for the pastor, you know, that it would go down so far, and when it hits red, you just got to stop. 
other people go like this. I'm actually glad that Jeff took the time today because it's a perfect example, right? Because what we do is not just an add-on, it's who we are. And if the time just has to be an add-on, then let's not meet. Right? Let's not meet. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He says, we will defend the Bible as the Word of God, but we don't always treat it like the Word of God. So I'm going to actually expand on that. I'm going to say we need to treat God's Word as something that is sacred and brings us salvation and life. We need to treat God's Word as His Word that equips us to live according to His will and do His work. Timothy, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, his protege, and he wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's why I love the song that we sang. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. And you have to understand, in our reading today, it wasn't that Ezra and the priest said, okay, you stand here and we're going to read. No, the people actually said, bring us the word. We want you to read the word. Because they were hungry for it. They were thirsty for it. They knew it wasn't just something apart from their faith. It was their faith. It was the word that brings them to faith. You see, Jesus in his parable, he said this. He said that the word, the the seed that's planted, that's thrown, that's given out, that's sowed, the seed that is sowed is the word of God. And it falls on various ground, doesn't it? And while faith comes by hearing, the point of this is being a disciple is about holding fast to the Word, of having it take root in your heart. That's why he said, he who has ears, let him hear. He's talking about not just hearing the physical thing of one ear in ear, one out the other. He's saying it's got to go to your heart. From here to here, that 18 inches, right? And it takes root in your heart. And then it produces that love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the reconciliation that you so desire. It's what it means about being hungry for His Word. And they weren't only hungry to hear His Word, they wanted to understand it too. They wanted to understand what was read. 
starting in verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. In essence, he was kind of like this, right? He was on a platform, and it would have been kind of like this, believe it or not. And he, as he opened the book, and, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. Now, when he's talking about the book of the law, that would have been the first five books of the Old Testament. It's called the Pentateuch or even the Torah. The first five books are the law. And he didn't read everything from it because that would have taken too much time. So there would have been selections from it and helping the people understand. That should seem pretty similar to what we're doing this very day. But the question is, well, why did they need help understanding? I mean, they spoke Hebrew, right? Well, you have to understand this. While God's word and meaning don't, don't ever, don't, I'm sorry, I'm going to do it this way. While God's word and meaning don't ever change over time, man's culture and language change over time. His word, his meaning never changes our culture, our language, and certain word meaning changes. Now, you might be thinking, but hold on, they spoke Hebrew, right? Or, well, they spoke Greek in the New Testament. And, and, and so, yeah, we got to translate that into English. But did you know English has changed dramatically over time? I mean, a lot. So, John Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, sometimes people say it that way. It's the oldest English translation of the Bible. The oldest English translation of the Bible. I'm going to put it on screen. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to let you see if you can even figure out what it might say. You ready? Here we go. Now let me read... From Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, he wrote this around 640 years ago. That's how much the English language has changed. When Moses wrote it, and by the time Ezra read it, a thousand years had gone past. So they had to make sense. They helped people, they helped give the sense to the people so that the people would understand. And that's what any pastor should be able to do, is to help you understand and then apply the word. That's certainly what Jesus did with with the disciples, with the parable, right? He helped them understand and then to live that out. See, God's Word is never meant, God's Word is never ever meant for just the pastor or 
just the priest or the scribes in those days. It was never meant to be withheld from the people. God's word is always for the people. When you take a look at the early church, Latin became really the common language of the day. And it was very common, but Latin was generally for the more educated people. And so if you didn't have a tutor, you didn't know Latin. And they didn't have the Gutenberg Press by then, so it was only a book that they might have, the Bible that they might have in a church. So what happened, the people relied on the priest to be able to give the word. And over time, what happened, there became a bit of a power grab in the Catholic Church. We are the ones who control the word, and thus now the priest became the intermediary of the word. But we are never to withhold Scripture from people. When you start withholding God's word, you ultimately withhold Christ Jesus and salvation. When you start withholding God's word, you ultimately withhold Christ Jesus and salvation. This is why the Reformation was so powerful, because now the Bible was written in the common language of the people, and everybody had access to it. You see, there is power in the Word. It is never meant just for the pastor. It's meant for you, and there is power in the Word. And that's why, by the way, dictators, one of the first things they do is take away Bibles because in Christ Jesus, He is Lord above all, and there's freedom in Him and Him alone. See, God's Word is alive And it comes to us in two different ways. God's Word comes to us in the law, and God's Word comes to us in the gospel. So it does come to us as the law. Let's go back to our text from Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, who taught the people, said to all the peoples, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not weep or mourn, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They wept. Now, that's kind of a strange reaction. I mean, isn't this God, His Word, but God the Redeemer? God who brought them out of slavery from Egypt. God who actually helped them rebuild the wall, right? God who did all of this, and yet they wept. Why would anybody weep when you hear God's word? They wept because they knew that they had sinned against God Almighty. His word is law. Struck them to the heart, and they knew that they were sinners before a holy God, an almighty God, They knew that not only they themselves individually were sinners, but as a people, they had turned away and abandoned God and His Word, and they were struck to the heart. And that's what God's Word as law will do. Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, The Word of God is living 
and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, when God's word as law strikes your heart, you are convicted. And it is through his word that it comes knowledge of sin. And that conviction of sin leads to repentance. And repentance is to turn away from what you have done. It is more than just sorrow. It is actually to turn away. And yet there are churches nowadays who don't want to talk about sin because it makes people uncomfortable. They are. There there are churches who will simply avoid that. I found a quote. I don't know who said it, but I thought it was a great quote for this. There was a time when people went to church, heard the truth, and wept over their sins. Today, people go to church, hear motivational speech, and ignore their sins. And the truth is, most of us, we want to ignore our sins, right? We'd rather not be confronted, convicted, because that would actually mean we'd have to change too, by the way. But church, and the reading of God's Word, is a place in which you are sanctified. Sanctified, being set apart, being made holy. Be holy as He who called you is holy. And it's a process of sanctification. Week in and week out. Day in and day out, right? And it's uncomfortable. But dealing with sin is uncomfortable. Because our old nature doesn't want to die to sin, does it? It doesn't. Last week really talked about dying to self. Like, yeah, tomorrow. Another day. I put it off. You know, we just don't want to. But that's what God's word as law does. It does strike you right to the heart. See, the law breaks the hardness of your heart so that, and that's important, that little phrase, so that the gospel may be received and take root. The gospel may be received and take root. It is so that you hear the wonderful words of life and they take root in your heart. So let's go to some good news. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing, all, nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. See, they were told to go about their way, in essence, to have a feast and give the feast to those who didn't have any. This is actually really similar, and by the way, this is a gospel-type message here, a good news-type message, and it's reminiscent, a reflection of the graciousness of the banquet that God has ready for us. 
There's a wonderful section in Isaiah chapter 55. It says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is sweet, sweet words. See, you and I, we actually have nothing to bring to the banquet. God has laid it out for us. We are but beggars before him. And he says, come. And it's like, but hold on, I'm a sinner. He says, come. But I have nothing to give you. Come. I'm not worthy. Come. Come to the banquet. I have laid this out for you that you may enter into my steadfast, sure love, my covenant. This is the banquet that he has laid. That is a gospel message. And this is why they said, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's that quote. The joy of the Lord is your strength. By the way, you walk past that every single Sunday when you come in this building. They are, one, it's on the a, one of the A-frame signs out there. And if you come before we start our countdown, it's always on the screen. That should be emblazoned in your mind, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I suppose you could take it this way. Uh, one is to say, my joy for the Lord is my strength. Right? So the onus of the joy is on me. Any of you ever have a bad day? Any of you kind of fluctuate in the level of joy you have in your life? I would encourage you not to put the joy of the Lord on you. Rather, it is His joy. It's His joy. You see, this is what Jesus said, John 15. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. He says, I've given you my word. And if your word is in your heart, and you follow your word, you're going to have this overabundance, this overflowing joy in your life. Therefore, we can easily say, assuredly say, that the joy of Jesus, His joy, is my strength. And where do you find that joy? You find it, the greatest joy, in the very gospel message. For in that gospel message, it says, no matter how great your sin is, His grace is greater. And thus, we trust His word and what His Word declares to us. Because we believe that His Word is active and alive and does this thing for which He says it does. 
Therefore, when Jesus declares forgiveness, we believe that we are indeed forgiven because what he declares. I'm going to read it again. When Jesus declares forgiveness, we believe that we are indeed forgiven because what he declares. In a little bit, we'll have the Lord's Supper. And what is declared in the Lord's Supper? Forgiveness. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So why do we, receive, why do we believe we receive forgiveness of sin in the Lord's Supper? Because we believe what he has declared. We believe that we are forgiven, that we are restored, we are redeemed. And because we are restored, redeemed, you know what? We have joy. I'll say that really serious like it's wrong. We have joy. No, we have joy, right? We have joy. One of the songs we talked about, uh, but we didn't use this week, was joyful, joyful, we adore thee, right? Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And so thus it says this, And all the people went on their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as disciples of Jesus, be hungry and thirsty for his word. Be eager to understand and to live out his word. And then, let his word as law put to death your sin. And let his word as gospel bring you to never greater life and joy in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. And all the people said amen, right?